0: When we lived in Songwangsa, which was the Zen monastery in South Korea where Martin and I trained for some years, in the in the Sonpang, or the Zendo, the meditation hall, there used to be a great big clock on the wall. Now This was the only noise we heard. Outside, particularly in the winter retreat, it was completely still and silent. We were separated from the village by a couple of miles. We were enclosed by a ring of hills, a perfect condition for for silent contemplation, except for this clock. And it was an old-fashioned wind-up clock with a pendulum. Every Zen hall in Korea had one. Great big wooden thing with an antiquated mechanism that um, tick-tocked very loudly and not even evenly. Um, You could soon learn to tell the time by the idiosyncrasies of the ticking and at the hour it would then um, coil itself with a big kind of creaking noise and then resonate with the hours now um, more than once the westerners who were practicing there went to the zen master and said look we will buy an electronic clock for the monastery and we will replace the one that makes all the noise. And he said, no way. (laughs) He said, every tick of the clock is teaching you a great lesson of the Dharma. Because with each tick, your life is getting one second shorter. And on those grounds, he refused to replace the clock. The idea being that our life is every moment running out. And the clock was an excellent way, if we so wished, to pay attention to that unalterable fact of life. In practice, of course, over time, you just got used to it. And it ceased to be a bother. But the point that our teacher made has always stuck with me. It's hardly an unusual thing for a Buddhist teacher to point out. But it is extraordinary extraordinary how easily we forget it. There's a saying in Zen that one should practice as though one's head were on fire. In other words, there's a strong emphasis that this practice we're doing here, and it need not be Zen practice, it can be any form of of meditation practice, um, has an element of urgency about it, that we tend also to forget the precarious situation that we are always in each moment, namely that this may be our last day on earth, this may be our last hour on earth, this may be the last breath we take, and we tend to somehow lapse into a complacency Many years after having heard this admonition of practicing as though one's head were on fire, I stumbled across its um, original source. And it occurs in the Sanyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses in uh, the Pali Canon, where the Buddha is in dialogue with Mara, the, the devil the demon, the demonic. And and Mara on one occasion uh, says to the Buddha, Life is long. One should live like a milk-sucking baby. And the Buddha retorts, No, Mara, life is short. One should live as though one's head were on fire. As with um, many of the passages concerning Mara and the Buddha, um, we find uh, a much more uh, vivid, uh, concrete, metaphoric language. And here we have this this wonderful image of of living as though one were a milk-sucking baby, which is an image of of uh, satiation and at the same time an image of of endless supply, at least from the baby's point of view. Um, A situation in which one is concentrated just on satisfying one's most primal physical need. And I think the equivalent to that is that we spend a great deal of our time, even once we are... Past the need for such milk, um, engaging with all sorts of substitutes, um, indulgence in, in various um, addictions we might have, um, indulgence in, in uh, trivia, entertainment, gossip, switching on the radio, opening the newspaper. Um, all manner of things that we do as though we had an endless amount of time left to us on this earth where it really didn't matter what we got up to. So it's useful, I think, sometimes to reflect when we're sitting here, when we are, as it were, we have made a commitment to come somewhere where we're not going to just keep on doing what we normally do day by day. We've made a choice to literally sever ourselves from things that we otherwise enjoy. And we've decided, and again I can't speak for all of you what your motives are, but for whatever reason we've decided to, to spend this week focusing on something rather more Pressing, perhaps, rather more urgent in our lives. And I think it's useful to to consciously reflect upon the precariousness of one's life. We do tend to think, I feel, that it's only other people who die, which in a very naive sense is true. As long as you're alive, only others will die. But even when someone close to us passes away, although we may suffer initially a shock, a sense of deep bereavement, of loss, of mourning, and we may also find in such periods, the days that, and the weeks that follow such events, a a certain deepening of our lives in a way. It's very difficult to be, to be trivial and, and, and superficial and petty in the presence of, of a recent death. The, the, the power of death is that it can somehow um, give us a sort of vertical shock and drop us down to a place within ourselves that, however uncomfortable and and distressing it might be, we also know quite viscerally that there's something rather true and real going on. And we cannot but, I suspect, reflect on our own mortality, that one day I too will uh, vanish from this earth I'll leave a legacy of things and memories but this living, breathing person will be here no more and I also recognise if I'm remotely humble that I'll be forgotten fairly quick as well much as we tend to forget those we know who have passed away When I was um, a monk in the Tibetan tradition, we were instructed every day to meditate on this, to sit cross legged, to quieten our minds to some point, recite some prayers, was often done as a preliminary, and then to focus our attention on the certainty of death, that the only thing that We know for sure um, will happen in the future is that we will die everything else all the other things that we plan for and hope for and make arrangements for um, are not guaranteed to happen either events will intervene and something else will happen in their stead or else we won't survive to to experience them And the way we did this meditation was by reflecting um, in a conceptual way. This was an analytical meditation, not a a focused, concentrated one on a single point. Uh, We would just reflect on on, uh, how that is the case. We would think of all the different beings that have been born on this earth since life began. And curiously, they all suffer the same fate. Once one is born, one will be around for a while and then one will die. This is simply the nature of life itself. The second point that we would meditate on is that this one certain thing, my own death, is something that is entirely uncertain as to when it will occur. And here you get this strange Maybe it's not strange, but in any case, this the, 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 this curious um, coincidence between certainty and uncertainty—the one thing that is certain, the only thing that is certain—is entirely uncertain as to when it will occur. And again, we know this: we know that we might have a heart attack, or that we might get killed in a car crash, or whatever it might be. But the the point I think the Buddha's trying to make, um, and many others too, our Zen master, for example, is that we don't really know it. If we did really know it, then chances are that we would practice as though our heads were on fire. We would sense a certain urgency, um, a certain uh, a kind of rigor, I think, that would impel us to take our condition maybe more seriously than we normally do. There's a famous story, I don't know whether it's apocryphal or not, uh, concerning the Russian writer uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, who, when he was a young man, was arrested for some terrorist act, I think, and was condemned to death. And he describes in in one of his novels um, a character based on himself who was being led out to the execution ground at dawn. And the way he describes it is of a person who is almost in a mystical rapture because at that time, in these last steps, the character's sense of life on earth um, is no longer has any uncertainty that the end is is imminent that each moment each breath is quite literally one of his very very last and the way he describes it is um, as giving his life and hitherto unprecedented intensity. Everything stood out, uh, radiated that much more powerfully than ever before. In real life, apparently, Dostoevsky was reprieved at the last minute and survived to write that story. But what I found also in doing these meditations on impermanence and on death is that paradoxically that was the effect that by reflecting on the certainty of death and the uncertainty of its time, um, instead of making one feel gloomy and morbid, uh, strangely it makes one feel that much more alive. Because it somehow um, wakes you up to the fact that you are breathing, that you are conscious, you are present, you are here. And this is really rather an extraordinary thing. Particularly since we know that it may not be with us much longer. We may not be here much longer. There's a kind of enlivening of one's experience that comes from uh, internalizing uh, this awareness of our own mortality. And so that, I think, is perhaps what is meant by the idea of living as though one's head were on fire. One's being, perhaps, comes alive is on fire, as it were. And hence I think the importance of our own teacher, Kuzan Sunim's emphasis on the click on the ticking clock. This too could be a portal, a way into such awareness. What it almost certainly does if one Uh, finds oneself in such um, a state of enlivenment in the face of death, it begins to question what one's priorities are. What really matters? If I knew that I only had a month or a year to live, what would I do? If if, If time were literally measured out and I had to plan for that, that's of course a rather exceptional circumstance, but in fact, at another level, it's it's true all the time. We just don't have a deadline. And I think these sorts of experiences um, cause us to, to to reflect back, to question: you know, what am I doing here? What am I? Why am I sitting here? I found it often helpful when in meditation the Practice goes flat. Maybe some of you have had this experience. You feel very groggy. You, you feel very listless. You feel a bit bored. You're coming on this retreat or a retreat because, well, I always do one retreat a year or whatever the reason is. Um, sometimes this practice too becomes routinized. It becomes a, a, a ritual to some extent, something that you feel you should do. But in a way, when that happens, the whole thing can lose its spark and become rather repetitive. And you find yourself repeating the same things you did on other retreats that you greatly enjoyed, but they don't seem to provoke a similar effect. It's as though something has has somehow got deflated. My Tibetan teacher used to say, it's like the the air has gone out of a balloon. There's a kind of a a flagging, a lack of tension. And it's often helpful, I've found, in such moments, to stop doing whatever you are doing, watching the breath or, or generating metta. And instead, just to spend a session asking yourself, you know, what am I doing here? Why am I sitting on this cushion? Not in a repetitive way, but just to pose that question in all seriousness. I think it's very easy to lose touch with the sources of one's inspiration, which I suspect in, for all of us have been moments uh, which have been very important to us, that have motivated us you know, in a deep way to commit ourselves to this kind of practice, this sort of philosophy of life. And yet once it becomes routine, and it can, then we begin to lose that momentum and to lose that edge. And at such times, it's probably useful to stop doing what you're doing and to come back to that basic question, why am I sitting here in this room now? Why am I doing this? And allowing yourself uh, just to be open to that question without feeling you have to dash in with all sorts of clever justifications. But to actually listen in the quietness that follows the posing of that question uh, for a response that may or may not come immediately but allow yourself to be open to your own life as a question being posed to you. Why am I sitting here? Why am I doing this? And try to peel away, get below the surface of the superficial reasons and try to reconnect with what prompted you uh, from your depths at some point in your life and to be open to that question and you may also if if that is not sufficient actually reflect on your on your life and your death what the chinese call the great matter of birth and death to try to bring that uh, sense not in an intellectual way but in a a more felt way, uh, back into focus to reframe your meditation um, from that perspective of, um, of mortality, of birth, of sickness, of aging, of death, which are of course the, the supposed events that prompted the Buddha's own quest for awakening. And in some ways, the Zen tradition um, began in China around the, well, it's a little bit unclear, but let's say around the 6th, 7th centuries AD, as a movement away from what was felt to be a rather scholarly, a rather um, academic uh, way in which Buddhism was practiced in China at that time. Some of the first Buddhist schools that developed in China were schools like the, the Tiendai school and the, uh, the Yen school, which were rather sophisticated philosophies, rather scholarly. The ideal was the scholar monk, someone who had mastered the intricacies of Buddhist doctrine and ritual perhaps. And did meditation, of course, but it was all a rather rarefied affair. And as Buddhism began particularly to impact with the the native genius of China, which I think in some respects we know under the heading of Taoism, there were many Taoists, followers of Lao Tzu and Chuang Tzu, who were drawn to Buddhism for its Emphasis on meditation practice. And many of them became monks, became Buddhists. But kept within them this this Taoist sensibility. And it appears that around the 6th, 7th centuries, there emerged a kind of a a tension within the Buddhist community. And at a certain point, uh, there was a, a rupture and I suspect this took place in a few individual cases initially, Um, basically of people who said, look, all of this theory, this scholarship, these sutras, these texts, this is all very well, but it seems to somehow not address the primary uh, condition of the human being. And so there was this, this movement that sought to return in a way, to emulate what Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, had initially done, which was to put aside speculation and theories and time-honored traditions, and just to sit famously beneath a tree. And there was, I think, at this period, and it coincides with the beginning of the Tang period in China, Uh, a move away from abstraction and scholarship and ritual and a return to the primacy of just sitting, of just uh, asking yourself very fundamentally, what is this? Or maybe not even using any words at all, but just reconnecting with the primacy the immediacy of what is actually happening to you right now. And in some ways, this is a return to what also in in classical Chinese uh, language is called the 10,000 things, uh, the totality of experience. And so this, uh, uh, this act of just sitting puts aside uh, speculation, theory, belief, uh, doctrine, dogma, and just returns to a primary um, encounter and questioning and openness to the 10,000 things. Now, in the Indian tradition, um, the 10,000 things is not an expression that is used... You either get sabhadamma, which means all phenomena. But another term that's used um, is this idea nama-rupa. Nama-rupa. Nama-rupa literally means, nama means name, rupa means form. And this was an idea that the Buddha in fact borrowed from the Upanishadic tradition. It's a term that pre-existed um, uh, the Buddha historically and one that he borrowed and gave a new meaning to. But its meaning in the, in the Upanishads means a bit like the 10,000 things. Um, name form. In Indian cosmogony, in other words, in the classical way in which the Indians describe the origination of the universe, you start with Brahman, this undifferentiated unitary godhead, very often considered to be a state of pure awareness, pure consciousness or bliss and truth. And somehow, and this is the problem with all, with all uh, theistic explanations of how things came about, this undifferentiated oneness began to differentiate, and uh, there are various stages described. But at a certain point, um, the process of creation results in multiplicity, in nama rupa. And nama rupa um, is described in the Upanishads in terms of how. At a certain point in the creation, specific things became recognizable. And this is where name, form begins to make sense. Things have names, we recognize them by their names, or we recognize them by their form. So in the case of me, for example, Stephen, if somebody calls out, Oi, Stephen, I go, Oh, that's me or someone else to say, oh, that's him. Or if I see myself in a mirror, or I um, see a photograph of myself, I can immediately say, oh, that's me. So Nama Rupa is not just plurality, but it's, it's, it's things have specific identities. Things are differentiated. The world becomes multiple and plural. And yet the aim of the Upanishads was actually to uh, get to a point where nama-rupa, that differentiation, could return to the source, to the, to the one, to the brahman. Nama-rupa, in some respects, is considered to be a mistake, a divine error that needs to be corrected. Now the Buddha took this idea, nama-rupa, and gave it a rather different spin. It still has very much to do with multiplicity and differentiation, but it becomes analysed down into specific components. Rupa, which we normally translate as form, um, refers to everything that I see, hear, smell, taste, and touch which actually in English stretches the word form. I don't think we think of sounds as forms or smells as forms, but they're rupa. Rupa refers to um, everything of which we have sensory consciousness. We're sensorially aware. It's the data of our immediate uh, embodied experience. So when we come back to this question, why am I here? What is this? As we'll begin to explore tomorrow, the this refers to this primary data of Nama Rupa, of what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch. Now what I like about Zen, in distinction to the Indian traditions, is that it tends to, render these rather abstract ideas more concrete. In Indian Buddhist texts, you hear about sound, smell, taste, touch. In Zen texts, you read about cups of tea or bamboo or frogs jumping into ponds or cicadas chirping in the evening or cherry blossoms falling off the branches of a tree. Or snow on the ground with footsteps running across it. Or shadows against the wall of a temple. And that's something that's never really happened in the Indian traditions. The Indian traditions don't tend to go specific. That's left up to the individual person. But the power of the Zen approach, I find, is that it renders... Um, these ideas concrete some of the for me the most powerful Buddhist art um, are the brush paintings of Senge as a Japanese uh, brush, brush painter Senge's frog just a few brush strokes and there's this extraordinary frog Senge also did a wonderful uh, scroll painting of a broom There's something very potent in this imagery that translates the abstraction of ideas like Nama Rupa and renders them far more concrete. And so when we sit here, when we wander around the house, when we walk through the garden, we don't just hear sounds and smell smells and see colors and shapes and touch textures No, we pick up a fork. We eat from a bowl. We brush our teeth with a white and blue plastic nylon brush. We see the camellias in the garden rather battered by the rain. We see the little bunny rabbits hopping around on the lawn. We touch the texture of our bed sheet. We smell the rather indefinable waft of aromas of vegetables and dal and rice blended together that come to us from the kitchen so when we ask a question like what is this we're really focusing on um, the, the the highly specific nature of our of our experience here and now And I think it's useful in this practice to try to get away from abstract ideas and to become much more focused on the concrete and on the specific. Then when the Buddha speaks about nama, he describes it as um, a sequence of uh, primary mental operations, starting with contact, and then feeling, perception, attention, and intention. Now, again, that might sound a little bit abstract, but what the Buddha, I think, is describing in his version of Nama Rupa is the entire spectrum that starts with, say, the core of a rook in the tree we've heard them today and they're rooks by the way, they're not crows the core of a rook is um, the the datum the sound that impacts that's contact that impacts the ear, the organ of the ear, the eardrum in impacting the eardrum immediately there's a sense there's an affective sense of it being agreeable although in most cases probably disagreeable we wish the thing would shut up it's disturbing us we're trying to meditate and now we get this so we feel it a certain way it has a kind of an affective tone a kind of colouring and at the same time as it feels a certain way, it also is intelligible. We know what it is. We know that it's the call, the call of a rook or a crow. It's actually a rook. But we know that. It's not just some random noise. Uh, it is a highly recognizable. Noise. It is a specific creature in the world in this case. And in fact they're building their nests. That's why they're so noisy. And we also find ourselves attending to it. Sometimes we would rather not be attending to it. But it draws our attention. We focus upon it. We stay with it or we try and focus onto something else, our breath. But constantly the mind is seeking something to rest its attention upon. And that is the condition, or those are the conditions, that impel us to uh, to make choices, uh, to make decisions, uh, to think. Maybe a thought process starts running up in the mind. Um, you know, why do they... Why do they let the rooks build their nests here? Why don't they do something about it? Or it might be a rather benign association of thoughts. Oh, I love rooks. I wish there were more of them. What could we do to maybe get Guy House to become a sanctuary for rooks? (laughs) And so we can begin to see through through this description of Nama Rupa that we're not... The Buddha is not just treating it as you know the differentiated world, the 10,000 things, but he describes it in a very um, sequential process of how experience comes about. And this is helpful, I think, because it enables us to, uh, to parse our experience in a way that opens it up. Um, I feel these kinds of theories can be useful in that they can help us sharpen and uh, heighten our attention by just giving us a few cues as to what's going on. The sound, the rook, the impact on the senses, the subjective feeling of liking or disliking, the intelligibility of what's happening, the making sense of it, the being drawn to it or drawn away from it, and then it initiating a series of thoughts that might then result in words or deeds later down the road. In other words, all experience is a trigger for action. There's nothing static. In this description, it's very much a description of how the world impacts us, how Rupa contacts this organism, triggers feelings, perceptions, impulses, that then move us on to act. So we live in a very dynamic situation. And it's through the totality of those things that we can consider ourselves Conscious Consciousness is not part of Nama Rupa. Consciousness is what emerges when Nama Rupa comes together. Uh, sometimes Nama Rupa in, in some Buddhist schools is just described as body and mind. It's much more complicated than that. Consciousness is the whole, W-H-O-L-E, of which these elements are the parts, and there's a very striking passage um, in a couple of the suttas in the Pali Canon, uh, where the Buddha inverts the usual account of the twelve links and says, "Nama Rupa perchaya In independence upon nama Rupa, there emerges consciousness. And then and then he says, And when consciousness turns back, it goes no further than Nama Rupa. Now that might be a little bit technical, but what it means, and I think what is striking, is that the Buddha has done away with any need to refer to some underlying principle of divine consciousness that gives rise to the the multitudinous world and that the multitudinous world at some point might collapse back into it. And here the Buddha recognizes that consciousness is the product of this diverse, complex sequence of events that's happening right now. But then in the next sentence he says, and at the same time, vijnana pachaya nama rupa that consciousness also is what enables there to be name and form. This is not a materialistic doctrine. It's one that recognizes a profound interplay or co-creation, co-emergence of the world, Nama Rupa, as well as our subjective involvement within it that generates our sense of being conscious, of knowing this as a seamless totality. And without such, such consciousness being very difficult to have any sense of what Nama Rupa might be at all. You can't have one without the other. So there's a very delicate interplay going on. So when we ask ourselves, you know, what am I doing here? Or what is this that's happening to me now? We might also find it helpful um, to... um, to pass or to break apart this uh, very rapid, uh, fast-moving experience and see it as a continuous interplay of external, internal events generating the experience we call consciousness. And that's where we are. But the point of the meditation is not to get caught up in what these particular words may or may not mean. In fact, we don't really have time to go into all of that in any depth on a retreat like this. But rather to try to sort of uh, become more and more aware, more and more conscious of our uh, dynamic, uh, specific experience as it's happening now to Stephen or to Mary, or to Joanne, or to Norman, or whoever it might be. Trying to get away from our tendency to to theorize, and rather to use theory in whatever way we can, to highlight, to illuminate uh, this very curious thing that is happening for each of us right now, the fact that we are conscious, sensitive, uh, fragile, uh, anxious, uh, joyous creatures on this earth. We don't know for how much longer. We don't know how many more breaths we will take. And yet here we are. And this is the, uh, the place where we're sitting and listening right now and this is the place where we're aware where we're conscious where we inquire where we practice Zen Buddhism and the practice is happening to this one here to you not to anybody else to you and that's the very core of what we're going to be asking about as this week unfolds. So that's all I'm going to say this evening. Um, We have a a few minutes, not too many, if anyone has a question or a comment they'd like to raise. Yeah, yeah, sure. Sure. Sorry, un, ungraspable. ungraspable. uh, Yes, I I think I think that's true, of course, of consciousness as well. I don't think any of these things can be ultimately pinned down, can be grasped, can be somehow reduced, can be somehow held in a final sort of description or anything. But it, 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 that, I think, is, the, in a, in a sense, the, 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 the ineffability of things that the sort of questioning we'll be pursuing in the next days will try to be more and more open to uh, when we'll be asking ourselves, what is this? And resisting, or at least being suspicious, of the mind's attempt to give an answer, to say, it is this or it is that. To try to be open to the fact that what's going on, however, you know, whatever clever words we use to try to describe it, um, is always going to be beyond the reach of any such concepts. Uh, but that doesn't mean, as is often supposed, that we can thereby somehow dispense with concepts. Uh, that, I think, is a mistake. Um, I think concepts can be very illuminating, but they can also be very entrapping. We can think we've grasped something if we can just have a, a clever theory or view or philosophy or explanation, whereas in fact at that point the, the quiddity or the thusness um, of experience will already eluded our grasp. Yes? I can understand um, practice for increased awareness, greater consciousness, a more easy, comfortable, peaceful way of being in life. But coming back to the beginning of your talk, I wonder if this is my last moment right now. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's obviously up to you, but um, <clears throat> I don't. I think that's somehow um, prejudging what you're doing. I, my, I, I can only speak for myself. Um, the only thing I would consider myself preparing for would be whatever follows, um, without any preconceived idea of what that might be. Um, you see, I think, and again this is something you get a lot in Zen, is this emphasis on spontaneity. And when you look at the Zen koans, the, the exchanges between teacher and student, what seems to be characteristic about them is that the student is in a position where when the master says something or does something or asks a question, the response comes not out of habit and what he has been preparing for. But it comes as a um, a kind of an an unprejudiced, an unprepared response. I think part of the problem we suffer from is that we spend too much time preparing for the rest of our lives. Or or perhaps we even spend a lot of time preparing for what will happen after our deaths. Religions are particularly hot on that. Whereas, in fact, that can serve, no matter how much consolation and security it might appear to give you, in fact, it's just overlaying the the uncontrollable, unpredictable, um, ineffable reality that's constantly unfolding with some kind of preconceived set of of good ideas or nice ideas or safe ideas, or whatever. And in so doing, we somehow miss the, uh, uh, the the immediacy of what's taking place and the capacity we have to respond to that in an unpremeditated way. And I think this is the characteristic of what we would recognize as as, as the origin of poetry, of art, of... Um, um, Things we would generally call creative responses to things, and so this meditation is not—we're not trying to, by meditating on death, we're not trying to prepare yourself your, for something that might follow, but rather by waking up to the um, to the momentariness of our life that is occurring each, all the time, to be more. Uh, to be living more on the cusp of what's unfolding in our senses, in our minds, in our emotions, and paying much more focused and and, and stabilized attention to that, not as an end in itself, but as uh, giving us a possibility uh, for our response to what happens to be not just a, a programmed or a conditioned reaction that's comfortable and makes sense, but rather that could perhaps spring from a much deeper depth within ourselves that might allow another kind of authenticity or trueness to ourselves. Uh, yes? <laughs> it actually also did happen in the past. I mean, I won't be in 100 years, but 100 years ago, I wasn't there either. Mm-hmm. So actually, you could say, it can't be that bad when you survive that world. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Well, no, I think, I think some of the ancient Greek philosophers uh, wondered why... We're so terrified of the great void ahead of us, and not of the great void before us. Um, Yes, that's true. Uh, We do cope. We do survive. But I think also that we uh, do spend a lot of time in a kind of death denial. We, we, I've noticed with elderly people. um, Well, not only I've noticed with myself, for example, that. um, I tend to think, if I'm, my, my, my default thought about death is that it's not going to occur next week. Probably not going to occur next month. Might occur, let's say, in a year or two. In other words, I've got this nice buffer zone. Um, I, that seems to be manageable. But what I've noticed with elderly people is that the buffer zone remains the same. That when you get to be 80 or 90, you still think that your default feeling is that, yeah, I'll die, but not not right away. And that, I think, is something that if we began to sort of pair that off, we might come to a more, um, uh, I don't know, to, to, I mean, I've, I know it sounds odd in a way, but um, probably the most effective meditation I did when I was a monk was this meditation on death. That was the meditation that actually had the most effect. And it really did make a change. I think it still does. Um, and I think it, it helps you, you you become much more sensitized to uh, the, the, the sheer uncanny fact of being here. And that, I think, is precisely what this questioning that we're going to be doing this what is this is constantly trying to wake us up to or simply come back to the breath when you're just doing satipatthana when you're doing mindfulness meditation each time you say come back to the breath you are as it were waking yourself up to remember that you're here at all and that it's, it's a very strange thing to be here at all and it ain't going to last